Pachango. Earthlings, I come to you from Crestone, Colorado, November 4th, 1.01 p.m. It's a Saturday. I think I'll release this Monday, so you're probably hearing this Monday, maybe Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, whenever you're hearing it. I hope things are okay for you in your life. I, I hope you're, you're not uh, getting washed under this incoming tide of of just horror, of just horrible, horrible shit that's going down in the world. Um, and I don't really want to talk about it. Let's not talk about Israel and Gaza and how many children would be proportional sacrifice for the children that have already been murdered. It's just like, here's the thing. There's this old lady who lives next door to us. I, I'm, I'm trying to seduce her into doing the podcast, but she's reluctant. She's a wonderful lady. Royal Lynn is her name. She's had a very rich life, very full of adventure and spiritual quests and erotic adventure and intellectual adventure. And, and she's just, uh, she's full of piss and vinegar and she's got four different terminal illnesses and uh, she keeps saying i'm on my way out I'm like yeah we're all on our way out we're we're all heading for the exit um anyway the other day i i picked up some stuff for her in town and uh some friends and i helped stack her firewood for her and uh she's like she's hesitant to accept help. She likes to be independent. She likes to do her own thing. And I totally get that. You don't live in a place like this if you don't like doing your own thing and taking care of your, yourself and, and your, your needs. But she's 80-something. And, you know, I, what I said to her the other day was like, look, there are times in life where you accept help and there are times in life where you give help. And depending on the structure of your personality, accepting the help can be a hell of a lot harder than offering the help. Um, but it's, it's important, I think, that we recognize those seasons in our lives and we step up with some whatever measure of grace we can conjure to offer and to accept help, right? And I, I was saying to her, like, come on, you've spent your whole life. I'm sure you've helped more people than you can even remember. So just let me fucking stack your firewood for you. Let me get your groceries for you. You know, not to make her helpless. Uh, you know, she takes her dog for a walk. She walked six miles yesterday, she said. Um, certainly not to disempower anyone, but... Just because I feel as much of a need to lend a hand 
as, I, I mean, who needs more here? I feel like I need, I, it drives me crazy knowing there's this lady with diabetes and liver failure and whatever else is ailing her living in the house up there. And she might be cold at night or she might uh, feel lightheaded and, and not know who to call. Like that is, we need to engage. Anyway, the point of all this, the reason I was thinking of this is I was looking at the news and this fucking shit going on in the Middle East and Ukraine and just the fucking misery and horror and, and, and of course you want to do something, but what the fuck are you going to do about Gaza? What are you going to do? You're going to go scream in the street. You're going to, you're going to tweet some shit. Like, what are you going to do? And it occurred to me that we really need to be thinking in terms of firewood. Like, the realm, I feel like the the true realm of change that we can make is probably about as far as it would make sense to drag some firewood to a friend's house. In other words, it's very local. You're not going to pack up some firewood and ship it to the Middle East because people are cold, right? You're not going to pack up a cord of firewood and ship it to, to Ukraine because the winter's coming and the Russians are blowing up the electrical stations. There's really not much I or you can do about that situation. But there might be someone who lives in your neighborhood who's fucking cold, who doesn't have any money to buy a propane tank to run their heater or to get the stove running, and you can affect their lives. You can engage with them. And I feel like to the extent that these global issues pull our attention away from the local issues, there's something deeply unhealthy about this. And so if we begin from the premise that we can't help everyone and we can't really affect the trajectory of what's happening thousands of miles away, then the extent to which we're getting riled up about that can be seen as a way of actually disempowering us to make changes where we can. So that's that's what I would encourage you to think about. When you get overwhelmed with shit that's going on in the world and you just feel helpless, well, you are helpless. You're helpless to deal with stuff at that scale. But you're not helpless to split some wood for the old lady who lives down the road. Right? You're not helpless to pick up some groceries for someone who doesn't have a car or um, doesn't want to admit that they're in a tougher situation than it seems. And, uh, and I think if we focus on that, then the other stuff hopefully will take care of itself or at least we will maintain our capacity for compassion and not just get burned out by situations that are beyond our comprehension or control. Anyway, that's what I've been thinking about recently. This episode is kind of a, a special one um, because it started off, um, I wasn't even going to release it here. It was just uh, Anya's podcast, 
which some of you are probably aware of. I've been with Anya for about five years now, and she started a podcast before we met, a few months before we met, called A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, which was meant uh, somewhat ironically, because, of course, she knew she wasn't going to save the world, and millennials weren't going to save the world. But I think that what I was just trying to say, you know, the firewood rule is something that she's been, it's a thread that's gone through her her podcast and her approach to life over the last five years or so, which is that in order to really have any effect on the macro level, we need to focus on the micro level. And so that's part of the motivation for us coming to Crestone and doing the things we're doing here and trying to build the kind of life we're building here. Um, because in our own ways, we both came to the conclusion that there's really, you know, if you want to, if you want to help someone, you got to know them. You got sending 50 bucks to a charity could be a good thing, or it could just be burning money because it all goes to the administrators and most of those charities. But if you can configure your life in, in enough of a small scale way that you actually know who you live around, know who your neighbors are, um, you know, then you can bring things back to ground level and actually start to change things in a tangible way that not only makes the world a better place for some people around you, but makes your own life better. Because let's face it, it's the feeling that you get from writing a check and sending it to a charity that's helping people in Ethiopia is very different from the feeling you get from volunteering at a soup kitchen in your neighborhood or in your town, largely because of the human interaction that happens when you volunteer that doesn't happen when you write a check. And so writing a check is almost like empty compassion calories or something. Like you're not getting the spiritual nutrition that you need. And I'm not discouraging you from writing checks. Some of you write checks to me and I deeply appreciate that. But I do think that that sort of spiritual nutrition comes from interacting with other human beings immediately, seeing them, looking in their eyes, feeling their gratitude, feeling that you are having a tangible effect on someone else's life. And um, anyway, so Anya's been doing this podcast for five years. In the last couple of months, she started to talk about how it didn't feel the same and it was starting to feel like maybe it's run its course. And um, But it's very sad to give up something you've been doing consistently for five years. Um, to let go of a project like that. And uh, so she was doing a lot of soul searching about it and thinking about it. And then one day she just said, you know what? It's been five years to the day uh, since I started this podcast. And I think I want to let it go because other stuff is taking more of my time. And I want to give my time to this other stuff. And, you know, unsurprisingly, the other stuff is very tangible. She's writing for the local newspaper. She's working in local gardens. You know, she's baking bread. She's fixing this house that we bought. She's, you know, helping design different cabins we're going to build. And I mean, there's a lot of tangible 
immediate stuff going on. And I think she just felt like, okay, the podcast was all about getting tangible and getting small scale. And now I'm doing it. And and the podcast that was like part of my, uh, my way of getting here is now inhibiting my ability to be here. And I'm putting words in her mouth, but I think that's basically where she is on this. And, and she said, would you interview me? Would you like for the last episode, would you sort of, it would be much easier if we were in a conversation rather than me just trying to explain everything myself. And I agreed to, and then uh, I thought, well, how about if I release this on my podcast as well? So that's, what's going on here. You're hearing the last episode episode of Anya's a millennial's guide to saving the world. And you're going to hear about uh, what she's up to and what she plans to do next and so on and so forth. I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's very intimate. We're sitting by a fire. You can hear the fire crackling and, uh, we recorded in the morning with our coffee and, uh, it was, we were waiting for it to start snowing. And by the time we finished, there was a blizzard going on outside. So it was, it was kind of a beautiful, beautiful moment, and I'm glad to bring it to you. Let me set the scene. Anya and I are sitting here by raging fire at, uh, what is it, 8 o'clock in the morning or something? Something like that, yeah. It's early, and um, the first significant snow of the year has been predicted for today, so we're kind of looking out the windows at these dark almost purple clouds and uh, waiting for winter to begin. It may, in fact, begin as we're recording this podcast. Yes. Anya is sitting on a sheepskin with an electric hand warmer in one hand and the microphone in the other. (laughs) And there's also a bug zapper because we have houseplant gnats. So if you hear a snap in the background, it could be the fire or it could be the bug zapper. Yep. Is that a sufficiently set scene, do you think? I think so. All right. Tell people why we're here. What is the purpose? Not the purpose, but the occasion we're here to commemorate. Yeah. So, I don't know, a few weeks ago, I feel like it had been percolating for a while, but I decided it was time to end my podcast, A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. And I realized that coming up was the five-year anniversary. I launched it on October 29th, 2018, yeah, Um, and decided why not end it on the same day it began. It seemed somehow fitting to celebrate its five-year anniversary that way, so... Are you sure you got the dates right? Mm-hmm. Haven't we been together for over five years? For five years. We met on November 20th, so I met you only like a month after I started oh. the podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which was also... I thought it had been going for a while. No, it was Because there was always stuff about how you'd stop listening to my podcast because you didn't want to be <laughs> yeah. influenced. Yeah, I, I mean, I had been planning to start the podcast for a while. Um, I think I bought a mic sometime in mid to late 2017. <laughs> and I I recorded at least one or two introductions uh-huh. prior to the one that ended up being released, but decided it was horrible and I wasn't ready. And 
like what I was saying didn't land in the way that I wanted to wanted it to. So, um, so yeah, it felt like there was like a whole year of preparation and right. coming up with the materials and the name and you know doing all the kind of markety things in order to prepare. But then, yeah, it really didn't start until late 2018. So percolating. Yeah. It's a good word. Yeah. Do you think, have you ever seen a percolator? Yeah. Have you? Uh-huh. They still use those? Rarely. Yeah. It seems like it's a 1950s thing. Yeah. A percolator. Um, so, okay, let, let's sort of try to, first of all, let's start at the end, uh, since that's where we are. And I see snow falling. Yay. Yeah, I see the first snowflakes falling in Crestone, Colorado. It's exciting. I feel like we've been waiting for winter, and there have been like several far- false alarms over the past few months. Yeah. But I think this is for real now. So. Yeah. Um, I was saying we, we're starting at the end. W- what changed? Like what, what signaled to you? You said it was percolating, but what signaled to you like, okay, it's time to move on or change this or, or whatever? What what changed in you yeah it's super interesting because i in the episode i just posted which will be the second to last episode i talked a little bit in the intro about this and i remember a sort of mutual friend coming to crestone i think it was like sometime in the beginning or even in the middle of the summer and she asked about the podcast and even just a couple months ago, I was talking about how grateful I was that the podcast never really seemed stale because I really gave myself the freedom to like allow it to evolve with me. And um, so it, it really was quite recent because even as of a few months ago, I think I was still feeling like it was going to continue. Um, I think this summer in particular was really instrumental in changing my mind about things in a sort of very non-intentional way uh, because I got very involved in things in Crestone over Mm. the summer. I was working at these two gardens. I was helping to arrange the energy fair, which is this, the biggest event that happens in Crestone. I started writing for the local paper and my time was just all sort of being... Mm. Uh, taken by these local activities that I was doing, which I found very fun and really gratifying. And I was meeting lots of people and I was feeling really fulfilled and inevitably like going and recording a podcast episode or sitting in front of a computer took a backseat to all of those activities. And I did post a couple of podcasts in the past few months that were uh, conversations that I had really had because I was writing about these people for the local paper. Right. But I just decided to record the conversations and post them on the podcast. And so for a while I thought, well, maybe that's where the podcast is going. It's just that mostly I'll be, you know, interviewing people locally and it's so much nicer to do these conversations in person than to do them online. But then there just seemed to be a disconnect because I feel like what my podcast was about was were I don't know centered around these sort of broad big ideas around saving the world and while I always kind of understood that quote saving the world meant something far more local and mundane 
I feel like I had to go through the motions for that to be proven in a way. So once I actually started engaging in these local activities, getting involved in my community, it just really felt like that was the priority. And um, A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World and the where I was when I started the past podcast and my vision for the podcast just no real, no longer felt aligned with, you know, these conversations I was having with people locally or what I was thinking about. Right. Do you think, is that an inevitable trajectory? Like in general or for, for me? Specifically? Yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, there's that old adage, think globally, act locally. Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, so many people who have been politically active or who have, you know, spent a lifetime thinking and writing about, you know, how to make the world better come to this conclusion of like, y- you want to make the world better, introduce yourself to your neighbor and help yeah. her stack her firewood, yeah. you know, uh, give some food to the the person down the road, the old person down the road who can't cook for themselves anymore. Like, yeah. It is I guess what I'm saying is are you coming to the conclusion you said the use of the word mundane which I know what you mean but I think the word mundane has sort of a negative connotation yeah. but I if I understand you correctly what you're saying is nothing negative it's just the the uh, quotidian the yeah. right yeah. the the daily the, right. the 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 common and not right. not using common again in a negative sense yeah yeah, I'm not so sure that it's inevitable uh, unless you have a backyard to, you know, work on and get involved in. I think I understood that concept in a theoretical sense for a long time, and that was sort of always the goal for me. I think there was some degree of resistance. Like, I think I still held on to this idea that saving the world was you know, me making, even if it started locally, that it was like me making a difference globally or influencing something in a big way. Mm -hmm. Or like, you know, I remember many years ago thinking, oh yeah, I want to like, you know, start this community where all my friends live here and have that be, uh, like allow people to use that structure or what I did as inspiration or, you know, coming up with something and then, uh, scaling it, you know, uh, And I think even that's gone away, that it's not just that something locally might affect something globally, but that like, quote, saving the world is maybe just saving your own little world in a local sense. Um, And so I think, you know, I think so many of us, myself included, and I really feel like that was the only option I had for a time was to talk about things and to talk about ideas that I liked, but without application and without actually doing them, Mm. I couldn't really learn the lesson or be convinced of my own ideas. Um, And so like, you know, while I've sort of understood that I wanted to get involved with community and do things more locally for a while, I really had to be here full time in Crestone and get involved in things locally for that to really sink in and land. Right. So I think that concept I feel like is spoken about in theory and sort of more enigmatically, but I don't know how many people 
it's really landing for because they don't have a community to get involved in. Right. If you're living in L.A., it's your neighbor probably doesn't want to talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's yeah. weird. Yeah. I, and also, when I say the natural inevitable trajectory, I mean I'm I'm talk I'm I'm thinking of various things. I'm thinking of the maturation process, right? Like everybody in their twenties is grandiose yeah. and, and has all these unrealistic ambitions and and so on. Um, which is not to piss on that, right? Because from that, you know, it's almost like what Rodin said about sculpture. You know, I he said I I take a large piece of marble and find and just like chip away all the unnecessary parts. Right. You know, and I feel like we do that with our ambitions and our lives, like, oh, I'm gonna change the world, I'm gonna, you know, help the people and uh, and then I mean that's a noble sentiment. That's a, a beautiful chunk of marble. But over time, when you chip away all the unnecessary, superfluous bits, yeah. uh, you end up with a much smaller piece of marble, but much more beautiful. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like, so I don't mean to denigrate any of that process, but I also feel like it's the trajectory of creation, right? Like, you know, you write a book, for example, like, you know, when, when Casilda and I were working on Sex at Dawn, she would say things like, this is going to help people. This is going to change the world. This is going to, and I'm like, uh, okay, but I need to sit here and yeah. churn out another five pages today, right. which is very immediate and tactile. And then at the end of the process, if you're lucky and it does, you do write a book and it does get published and people do read it, everyone is having their immediate, every single person is sitting like on a bus reading your book in a very specific place in a specific moment in their lives. And so it all ends up with specificity yeah. is what I'm trying to say. I didn't say it very well, but <laughs> no, you know sense. what I mean? It's like we start with the global, the conceptual, yeah. but for anything to work, it ultimately has to be personal. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and honestly, I mean, I, I sort of wanted to go back and almost listen to the first couple episodes of the podcast because it is my memory that this, where I ended up now, where I am now was the goal. That I right. I had an understanding that sitting in my apartment in Topanga after ending my life and changing everything, I had hold on ending your life, ending my life as I knew people. it, <laughs> ending my uh, the reality of my life that I knew for right. twenty eight twenty nine years. So was the podcast part of that transition that you envisioned? The yeah, absolutely. So, can you just say for people who aren't familiar with your story, can you flush that out a little bit? Like yeah. you say, ending my life, people <laughs> are like, "What the fuck?" Um, so. Yeah. So, I think maybe up until my early twenties, I had some pretty solid understanding of who I was and what kind of life I wanted, and uh, I felt that I was pretty unconventional. Came from a pretty unconventional family and studied gender and sexuality in school and wrote these sort of very controversial papers about controversial topics. And, and then in my early twenties, I, you know, graduating from college, I think I felt boxed in as so many 
people do, even despite my unconventional background, feeling like I needed to get a job and make money and get married. And like, I don't know, one thing I sort of think of it as getting stuck in one of those like eddies in a river, just going around mm. and around. Um, like I just kind of went off my path a little bit and then gets got stuck spiraling in this very conventional place. So I bought a house, I got married, I had a job working in marketing for natural products brands, and I was living this sort of San Diego housewife food blogger life, which, uh, I mean, I, I'm sure it was subconsciously, again, percolating over time, but my decision to extract myself from that felt very sudden and severe it was like some kind of internal knowing was like this is not the path mm. um and so i i got divorced and i i had expected that the universe would reward me for this decision that like deciding to go off and return to the path that was that felt more authentically mine so you sort of expelled yourself from the whirlpool back into the river exactly and i felt like okay now i'm just going to continue going down the river like as i was 10 years ago and that was absolutely not what happened uh, mostly because i got quite sick um and had i had sort of struggled with acne throughout my 20s but when i got divorced it got very bad to the point where i was embarrassed to go outside um it was covering my face and that lasted for <laughs> several years uh and due to that i ended up spending a lot of time by myself and i moved into this cabin in Topanga and really worked hard at confronting what I needed to confront and feeling like before I got back on my nice river journey that I was going to need to deal with some shit. Um, and my nice river journey, <laughs> meaning life itself. Yeah, exactly. I'm not sure it's a nice <laughs> river, definitely some rapids. Yeah. Um, it's almost like the acne sent you into a pre-COVID COVID situation. Yeah. Like you were physically separated from the world for a while. Yeah, totally. And and I fought it for a long time. I was really angry and resentful because, again, I felt like, you know, what the hell? Like, I think I'm making the right decision. Why can't I go now and live this new life? Mm. And after fighting it and fighting it, you know, and I'm fighting against my body, which is clearly trying to tell me something important. And I'm just resentful and angry and ultimately sort of realized that because of what I had experienced with that, you know, if I hadn't, I would have been off distracting myself. If you hadn't what? If I hadn't gotten that acne and been sort of forced to stay inside due to embarrassment and shame, hmm. I wouldn't have gone through the intense like transmutation that I ended up going through. And hmm. so you so it was almost like your conscious mind thought just getting divorced and, you know, selling the house and like making those I don't want to say superficial changes because they're not. I mean, those are big changes, but structural changes. Yeah. Like that's enough. Right. And your body, your soul, whatever is saying, <laughs> uh, that's not even close to enough. You you got to like 
dig in and make changes at the source. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to therapy two to three times a week for like two years. Uh, My therapist was basically like one of the only people I saw during that period of time. I had one friend uh, who I grew up with who had just moved to LA who I saw and who also had struggled with acne. So I felt like a little bit more comfortable with her and some doctors, but really, truly for like a year and a half, I only saw those few people. And eventually I think I just became so exhausted fighting what was happening that I, you know, not forced myself, but inevitably came to a place where I felt gratitude about it and realized how meaningful that time in isolation and that inability to distract myself was for confronting things as deeply as I did. Um, and I remember this woman, I, I met her sometime, I don't know, in mid 2018, maybe when I was sort of starting to go out in the world a little bit more and sort of, you know, try to be seen. Uh, I think she did like craniosacral therapy or something. And we worked something out where I was going to give her an astrology reading in exchange for her doing this thing, which I still don't really understand what craniosacral therapy is. But I, what I remember in this, she came over to my house and I'm on this table and I remember having this epiphany of like, oh, right. Okay. This, this acne is is communicating something to me. It's telling me that something's off or something's wrong. And I had several experiences at this point where it had gotten a little better, but then I would do something and it would get worse. Um, and so I, I could recognize that this, this acne was responding to my decisions in life and responding to stress and responding to certain types of relationship dynamics that I was engaged in. And so I had this epiphany of like, this acne will go away when I develop enough intuition and discernment to not need it. Because if I can make these decisions on my own that, oh, that person's not a good person to engage with, or this is an unhealthy relationship, or, you know, this is what causes stress on my own, I don't need my body to alert me to a problem. Mm, it's it's like some sort of like a like one of those lights that goes off in the car when yeah. your tire's flat. Right. And if you just look at your fucking tires and put some exactly. air in them, you wouldn't need the light to go right. off. Yeah. And so once I had that epiphany, it was like, okay, well, this isn't going to go away automatically, but I feel like it's going to go away when it's meant to, when I'm ready for it When it's no longer it needed. Yeah. Yeah. And so then I started to just, I guess, redefine that, you know, where I was coming from it, where I was coming from before was this anger and, animosity and resentment of my body to a place of gratitude and like partnership with my body. Right. Like, Oh, this is helping me. And so can you fill in a little more like context? Like, cause I know things were going on in terms of your diet and different parts of your life that you were controlling or monitoring or yeah. manipulating. And also your relationship with your therapist was interesting and I think could be helpful for some people to hear more about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had sort of struggled with some health issues my whole life, mainly digestive 
but by the time I was in my late teens, early twenties, had sort of just accepted that as what it as who I was and what was always going to be there. You're just a person with a fucked up gut. Yeah. Right. And then in my early twenties, not honestly unrelated to the health issues, I discovered paleo and Mark Sisson and, uh, and I just was totally captivated by this idea of eating the way our ancestors ate and moving the way our ancestors ate that just, you know, made a lot of sense to me in a way that didn't almost didn't even need to be questioned. And so I was just sort of captivated by that idea and that theory and decided to eat that way and move that way. And for those who don't know, paleo is basically just like a whole food diet. You're, you're trying to eat things that aren't heavily processed. So it's pretty low carbohydrate, high protein and fat. And as a result of doing that, the digestive stuff started to improve, which I, Again, it wasn't the intention, but I made the connection. And, but then over time, you know, it got worse again. Like it it didn't stick. Mm. And I felt, and when it didn't stick, you know, and, and during this time, I guess I also, because it was working and because I was so compelled by this idea, I started cooking all these like weird foods and baking with almond flour and doing all these sort of unconventional dietary things and movement stuff. And I went, I got, I became a, a holistic health coach through the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. And it was all just personal interest. Like I had no intention of moving in that direction. In my career, I was still thinking I was going to do something with gender and sexuality. And you were still doing marketing at this point? Or? Well, this the, sort of aligned, it was sort of the beginning of that. I graduated college and got a job at Whole Foods because I was cooking all these weird things and wanted the discount, honestly. And I was going to take, I was planning to go to grad school for something related to gender and sexuality, but thought I'll take this year off just to like see. But in that year I got promoted from just being like a part-time deli person at Whole Foods to working full-time in the marketing department as a demo specialist, meaning I was cooking food on the floor for customers. Mm. And so I was like using all my weird, you know, coconut nectar and stevia and like all these weird things that I was using, I was selling for the store, you know, because I was making these recipes and, and that was just super fun. And I was working full time and had a salary and, and eventually just felt like I don't really want to go back to school. And I think I want to pursue this health and wellness stuff. Um, and so that sort of is what sparked my career working in marketing for right. natural products brands. Uh, people are probably wondering, like, wait a minute, you're living alone in a cabin, not looking at anyone or seeing anyone for a year and a half, and you're therapy three days a week. How are you paying for all this? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I I started working, I think, when I was 16. I had a little bit... A little bit. I had a difficult relationship with my mother growing up and felt really compelled to make my own money so that I didn't have to be controlled by her through money. Right. Uh, and so it was really important to me as soon as I possibly could to make money so that I could make my own autonomous decisions about what I was doing with my life. And I... I did. I started making money. I was working full time from the time I was maybe 18 at restaurants, made a lot of money. 
and saved a lot of money and, you know, again, got this, it wasn't a lot, but I think by 21 or 22, I was making $50,000 a year as this demo specialist and then started working for natural products brands. And, um, you know, by my mid twenties was making $80,000 a year running the marketing department of natural products brands and, uh, never was really interested in like spending a lot of money on Mm. things. Uh, So you'd saved up. I'd saved a lot of money. And you were spending it on therapy. (laughs) Totally. I think I spent as much money on therapy as I was spending on rent during that period. In LA. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And and talk about your therapist. Because so many people, a lot of people will write to me and say, Hey, uh, you know, I'm facing this situation. Like what should I do? And, Often I'm saying, find a good therapist. Yeah. But as I say that, I realize how hard that is. Yeah. And what's that even mean, a good therapist? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. And I was in th- I've been in therapy since I was a kid. My parents got divorced and, you know, my dad was gay and they're like, this kid's going to need some therapy. <laughs> so I was placed into therapy at an early age, but I don't think I ever really understood what it was for. Mm. Um, like nobody had really explained it to me. I just thought like, Oh, my family has weird or has problems. And so like, this is what you do, but I didn't understand the, the purpose of it. That's a loud crack. Yeah. I just put a fresh log on for those of you who are (laughs) wondering, I I hope that's comforting and not distracting (laughs) to listeners. Um, Jesus. Sorry, I guess it's not fully well, you cured. You have the headphones on. I can't tell what it actually sounds like in the mic, but yeah. sitting next to it in real life is it's pretty snap, <laughs> oppressively crackle. crackly. Um, so therapy. Yeah, so, well, so, and I guess and we no one told you what it was for. Well, like, not really. Jesus. I mean, I, I understood like why I was there, but I didn't understand what I was supposed to be doing there. Right. Like, what, what's the what's purpose? A, like, what does success look like here? Yeah. Or what, like, what can I use? The, how can this help me? It, it never, you know, and I think because my parents just put me there, it felt like school in some weird way. Like, oh, right. here's the time I have to like talk about my family. But I didn't know these therapists. I didn't n- trust them. I didn't like... It was just always a very weird dynamic. Um, and I mean, to sort of go back to this story of the health stuff, what ultimately happened over the course of my 20s was that as my digestive issues started to come back, what also, I also went off birth control in my early 20s and started getting acne in my 20s when I had never had it in my teens at all. Mm. And so in my 20s, and this is also I was in a new relationship and had sort of started this new life, and but I wasn't well. Like I was, the digestive stuff was still a problem and this acne was appearing. And because I had had this sort of, cor- I made this correlation in the past between, oh, eating this paleo stuff helps my digestion, I thought the the what I should do in order to correct these issues was to get even more and more strict about what I was eating and how I was working out, which I think made the problem worse, but I didn't come to this conclusion for many years. 
And I was working in this industry, this wellness industry, which was all about like, take this supplement, do this, eat this, don't eat that. This is bad. This is toxic. Mm. You know, heavy metals, mold. I was just overwhelmed by quote health and wellness advice that I think was ultimately making, not think, which ultimately made me sicker than I had been ever. The advice or the sort of energetic, uh, uh, state of being really attentive to that advice. I think both. I mean, because I think part of it, like advice that I got was to work out harder when what I should have been doing was like protecting my hormones by relaxing. Mm. And so I, I felt like, Oh, I'm not moving enough. You know, I'm not dieting enough. I think it was both. I think it was the stress that accumulated as a result of the advice, but also I don't really think all of the advice was good. Like for example, what I learned later was that for women specifically, it's a lot healthier for us, especially hormonally to have a little bit of a higher carb diet. Mm -hmm. But I was on this incredibly low carb diet that's like more designed for men. And so at this time when I'm going off birth control from having been on it since I was 16, my body really needed support, hormonal support to relearn how to, you know, do hormones basically. And instead of supporting that process, I think I was acting in a way that was, you know, um, counter counteracting what I needed to do. So anyway, this went on throughout my twenties and I was eating less and less, taking more and more supplements, working out harder and just getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And it all came to a head after I got divorced I think in large part, one, because of the stress that uh, occurred from getting divorced, but also because at that time I decided to go on some like insanely intense parasite detox protocol and was like giving myself coffee enemas and drinking chlorella smoothies. And um, I was just putting my body through an immense amount of stress at a time that was probably the most psychologically and emotionally stressful time in my life. And my body was like, you're an idiot. Here's severe cystic acne all over your face. So in this, I had gotten divorced within the first few months I had moved in with my mom. I'd left my house in San Diego. I thought that my ex-husband was going to leave and that my life would just continue on the exact way that it was minus being married. Um, but he refused to leave the house even though we had like designed it and renovated it specifically to accommodate my food blogging, food photography business. And I worked at home, but that became pretty untenable. And so I moved to my mom's for what I thought would just be a few months before moving back to my house. Anyway, it became clear that I probably was not ever going to get my house back without paying my ex-husband a lot of money. And I was losing my mind, essentially. I mean, I was just so depressed and confused and sad and fearful because I really thought I'm going to go off and live this exciting, shiny new life. But what's really happening is that I have acne over my face and I'm in my mom's guest bedroom and I am afraid to leave the house. (laughs) And And how old were you? uh, 28, I think. 27, 28. Um, And I... You know, I started seeing some like intuitive, holistic health coach, uh, thinking that that was sufficient. And basically, my father insisted I find a therapist. 
Um, and my, my dad's very gentle and very kind and very non-insistent. So when he insists and gets a little angry, you know, uh, I listen because it doesn't happen that often. Mm. Um, and he said, you know, that he insisted I go and that I needed to go not just once a week, but more than once a week, which was also a concept that I had never thought about before. But from having gone to therapy so many times made sense to me because when you go on a weekly basis, you spend like more than half the session just updating the therapist on the events that transpired the week before and you don't mm. actually get to get into anything. So that was great advice. And I, I was going, I think, maybe three times a week to start and then it, it moved to two. Uh, and I remember he, I mean, my dad was just totally responsible for for how, I think how well this ended up going, at least in the beginning, because he said, you know, you like me are very intelligent and therefore really good at lying to yourself and to others. And so I encourage you not to use therapy as a means to just reiterate your own self-delusion, basically. Mm. And he said, you know, just don't lie to your therapist. And that was also a concept like, oh, I had totally lied to therapists in the past because I was absolutely using them as a way to prove my own narrative to myself. Uh, and so this idea of not lying was extremely helpful. And he also said to go in with an intention and to tell the therapist that intention, to specifically say, like, I'm here paying you. This is what I want from this, mm. which was also a totally radical concept. Mm. So I did this, I, and I was spending shit tons of money for this therapist who had a PhD. I think that was also the first therapist I had who, maybe not the first, but in my adult life, like, had a PhD in psychology. The rest were, like, marriage and family therapists or... Um, it wasn't a PhD person. So I felt like she was serious and I was serious. And I went in there and I said, look, I'm going to take this really seriously and I'm not going to lie to you. And I would like you to call me out on my shit. And I promise not to fight it. Right. Because that's the, that's what happens. The therapist says, well, have you thought about this? Oh no, dur, 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 you know? So I, I committed to not doing that in exchange for her being pretty brutally honest mm. with me. And I agreed, she agreed, and that is what happened. And that was so much different than any other therapy I had been to. And, you know, I remember at some point she explained to me that the therapeutic relationship is supposed to model a new kind of relating for the patient, mm. which had also not occurred to me. So the point is, if you go into therapy and you're lying and you're spinning your narratives and you're behaving in the same way that you behave with everyone else in your life, it's just going to, the pattern is just continuing. But if you, if you use the therapist in a way to say, okay, I can be my total and complete self with this person. I can be imperfect. I can be a mess. I can, you know be broken, but that they're modeling trust and compassion and love, honestly, that that model is what takes you into the future, into new kinds of relating. 
And that's super scary to do, especially with someone who, who you're, who's not actually in your life, mm. you know, to trust that that person's not going to reject you or be cruel and to really allow you to be your full self and still be loved and accepted. That was a terrifying thing to do, but I realize I'm spending all this money on, on this thing. I want to do this right. And I, and I really was committed to not repeating the same relational patterns that I had before. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that was how I engaged. With yeah. I think that. that's important that, and I'm surprised that all therapists don't demand that kind of conversation at the beginning. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I I mean, I don't know. I have a PhD in psychology, so I guess I have some sort of vested interest in this, but I feel like I feel like a lot of therapists just cash the check and sort of sit there and watch. I, I feel like there's something very passive about um, the way therapy is taught. And I understand that you can't force growth on someone, yeah. but I, I feel like from an ethical perspective, I would feel really uncomfortable taking money from someone that I didn't feel was, you know, growing in some sort of a turbocharged way because of my presence to yeah. just sort of sit there and give them space to figure shit out for themselves just feels yeah. like, come on. Yeah, I always, I haven't, I never asked. I always wanted to ask my therapist, like, what percentage of people do you feel like this is actually helping? Mm. Um, you know, and it is relational. Like, had I said, I need you to be straight with me, but I didn't hold up my end of the bargain, which was to hear what she said and take it in, it wouldn't have worked. So right. I do think that, you know, but I, but I, you know, I have friends who I've given this advice to who have gone to their therapist and said, will you please do this and still feel like they're not. And it's more like, yes, I hear you. Yes, I'm supporting you. Yeah, this very kind of right. cozy, comforting, like <clears throat> everything you say is right and valid energy, which might be what some people need or want. It, it certainly isn't what helps me. I, I need someone to like the tough love strategy is far more effective. Right. Um, yeah. As a therapist, I, I feel like if I were doing therapy, I would fire a lot of clients. <laughs> right. Cause I think they need that. Yeah. You know, like if, if we agreed you're going to be honest and you are going to listen and really take on, you know, whatever insights I can offer you. And I notice that you're not doing that and you're just, maneuvering me into the position of, <clears throat> you know, sort of having to participate in your yeah. cycles of delusion, which I think is what most people will do. They won't even know they're doing it. And that's why I feel like at some point the therapist in most cases should come to a point where the therapist just says, Hey, uh, this isn't working. I, I don't think, you know, I think you should stop, paying me money and you should just go and think about shit and when you're ready come back right but you're not ready yeah i mean i feel like that's part of the process i agree but what do i know <laughs> i'm not a therapist yeah nor do i play one on tv so okay so where so this i think we fleshed out the process where you were in your life you were in this transformative moment and then you're like i'm gonna do a podcast like where does that come from 
Yeah, well, I I guess I had just honestly discovered podcasts during this time. I'd never listened to podcasts mm. before, and then all of a sudden I discovered there were podcasts. I discovered your podcast through some other podcast I was listening to. Uh, Joe Rogan? Were you a no. big Joe Rogan fan? It was an astrology podcast, oddly enough. <laughs> um, and I had read Sex at Dawn many years prior while I was still married, so I knew of that book, but I didn't know who you were. Or... Did that precipitate your divorce? No. One of the thousands of marriages destroyed <laughs> by didn't. that book? It didn't. Um, yeah, no, it didn't. But it did help me understand myself a lot better, and I felt very validated by it. Um, and I had always felt aligned with the concepts of non-monogamy, even though I wasn't practicing them at the time. Uh, it theoretically felt very validating. Um, so no, I, yeah, so I'd heard about podcasts and I started listening to podcasts. I mean, mainly because I was like alone in a cabin for two years and had nothing else to do. Uh, so I started listening to all these podcasts and I, I think at some point I felt like I wanted to write a book about what was going on with me, but felt like I, you know, didn't have the skills or the time or the energy to commit myself to doing something like that. And a podcast felt so much more immediate. And I felt like I had so many things to say and like all of this energy needed to be let out. Like I needed an outlet for mm. it. And a podcast just made the most sense to me. Um, you said you, you were feeling energy around writing a book about what was happening to you. Yeah. Are you talking about all the health stuff, the insights from the therapy, like the stuff yeah. we've just been talking about? Yeah, and like, and we didn't really even talk about all the stuff that was happening during those couple of years, but... After getting divorced and getting really sick, this was also Trump had just been elected. And so the world, it seemed to me, was collapsing in a way that like was speeding up. Uh, mm, yeah, there's definitely an acceleration right. in those years. Right. Like, I think everyone could feel it. Yeah, and there was a, a, a pretty intense mirroring going on between what I saw as like the world or at least our country facing a lot of shit that they had avoided up until that point. Like, uh, Oh, the planet's falling apart. Like, Oh, our government's corrupt and half the people in this country, like I don't understand. And so what was happening on a collective level was happening on a personal level. Like, Oh shit. You know, mm. I, my life is a mess and I never thought about this before, but it was totally going on. I was just, you know, willfully ignorant. Um, and so the process of my own evolution and my own metamorphosis, I felt like was being mirrored by a collective metamorphosis of sorts. And that was really compelling to me. And I felt like finally, after all of these years, I know doing something that I was interested in, which is the health and wellness stuff, it didn't really feel meaningful. It didn't feel ultimately authentic. Like it was mm. just a little small part of me, but I had all of these other things and, you know, call them gifts or paths or like I had all these other things I felt like I could do in the world. And I, I had been so disconnected from myself, which had enabled me to stay disconnected from the world. It, it felt mm. like I was just, it was like, as if I, like it was a numbness. Right. Um, and opening myself up to myself 
becoming less numb about my own life was also allowing me to become less numb about the world as a whole. And so uh, I, okay. and I was living in this beautiful place in nature and I started to just become so in love and enraptured by nature. And I took all these solo road trips by myself and was camping by myself. And I just fell in love with the planet basically in a way that I never had before. And so I felt like, oh, wow, this process that I'm undergoing with my own evolution is imperative to, quote, saving the world. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. Beautifully said that that reconnection with yourself reconnected you with the larger world, which, I mean, I feel like that's the thread running through your podcast and a lot of your writing and what we're here to talk about today is this macro micro personal global local universal like and so that that was the guide the millennials guide to saving the world was you know the the sort of unofficial tagline was fix yourself to fix the world Mm -hmm. it was how do we help ourselves so that we can go out in the world and help others or the planet in an authentic way Uh, And so all of the conversations that I had, whether they were about regenerative agriculture or spirituality or grief or, you know, psychedelics or whatever it was I was exploring was all about that micro macro connection. Mm -hmm. Um, And that just doing the personal or just doing the collective wasn't going to work, but that there was a um, inevitable connection between the two. Right. So do you think, that balance is something that needs to be kind of like maintained in real time or can you sort of flip back and forth? Well, I really, I feel like the personal stuff needs to come first Mm. Um, because I think there's a lot of quote activism that's not coming from an authentic place. Mm. Uh, which is, I think, like all of social media, right? Like, I'm just going to like post these graphics and like, but they're, they're not helping. They're not, they're just coming from this, like, I need to do this or else someone will attack me or I need to do this because someone told me this is the right thing to do. But they're not, you know, I think there's so many different ways to be an activist, a quote unquote activist and so many different paths, but we can't discover that until we know who we are and we, you know, trust ourselves in a way to come up with our own idea of what, I mean, art is activism. There's so many different paths to change in a collective sense. Um, And so I do think some, there's a quote that I love by Howard Thurman that I say sort of ad nauseum, which is don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive and do that because the world needs more people who have come alive. Um, so I, I do think the personal comes first, mm. followed by the collective. But again, it's like what you said about the inevitability of the macro moving to the micro. I think, quote, saving the world is so much quieter and smaller than what we think. And I, I really felt like as I was discovering who I was and my passions and what I was good at, I was still thinking about it in like, okay, well, how can I use these sort of authentic things that represent me to affect the world? You know, I I kept, it was too broad. Um, And over time, that's, I guess that's just sort of 
gone away. Um, and so like, okay, I like to write. Well, mm-hmm. instead of writing for the world, maybe write for the local paper. Like I'm good at marketing instead of like marketing a business to the entire world, you know, just like help with a market, a local event. Like all of these things have really just minimized in their reach, I guess. Energetically, is that like another expression of the same thing that happened, like in terms of your attention to diet and exercise and all that kind of strict paleo attention? Is is there a is there like a sort of an overall relaxation that moves from global to local, moves from theoretical to actual tangible moves from total control of your diet and coffee enemas to, you know, ice cream when you feel like it is, is, are those all expressions of a, a migration? Yeah, I think, I think so. I haven't thought about it in that way, but yeah, I think so. And, and, you know, you just I, sound so intense when you were 27 <laughs> and yeah. so was I, I think yeah. so are most people. And I, I feel like there's something really liberating about letting go of the intensity yeah, and letting go of this feeling of like, I need to save the world or I need to, you know, help be Jesus, you know, yeah. like we have a friend who openly admitted that she kind of thought of herself as Jesus. You oh, know? I did too. I mean, like spiritual crises are totally delusional and like... I, yeah, but the, I mean, it's what's the difference between I'm Jesus and like, I'm going to save the world. I mean, it's like the same sort of, you know, um, uh, inflated ego. Mm. And, and I think that's totally, I mean, for anyone that like goes through some kind of a spiritual emergency slash awakening, it is absolutely, there's a, a level of psychosis that's present there because you're, you're going from living this life of, making these assumptions about all of these things about how the world is and then sort of open up to like, Oh shit, wait, this isn't really how things are. So maybe I'm not who I thought I was and I'm having all of these epiphanies and that makes me special or, you know, I'm taking mushrooms and someone, I feel like someone's telling me I should be a shaman, you know, like those are all expressions of that, that interim period, uh, that hopefully, you know, evolves over time. But I think a lot of people get stuck there and really do think they're Jesus. Um, but yeah, you know, I think also the conclusion that I, I came to as well was this acknowledgement that the level of connectivity and awareness we have about what's happening in the world is completely unnatural Mm. and not aligned with what I believe our nervous system is even capable of handling. Right. There's no reason why I should be not just conscious of, but somehow feel like I need to help with a crisis that's happening across the world, which is depressing. And I think some people might see that realization as incredibly selfish Mm. um, because we are connected and because I can like go on a GoFundMe or something and donate some money or like post some shit on Facebook. But I, I feel like, if my nervous system and my body and humanity as a whole was not built to contain the crises of the entire world, there is literally nothing useful that I can do here and that I would be far more effective and useful 
trying to change or help something in my direct vicinity where I can walk or see or connect in real life. Yeah. Um, and how, how many of us are living in like anywhere, cities, suburbs, rural places, and like our activism is directed across the world. Like mm. what, why not spend that energy to change where you're at? And we have all this guilt and shame about that because it's not, we think, oh, but our situation or our life is not as bad as insert, you know, person here. Um, and so we feel this incredible guilt and shame. And I've, I feel like I've just been working for the past five, seven years or whatever it is to like get rid of that sense of shame and guilt around the fact that I not am not only not built for, but cannot, no matter what I try to do, quote, save the world. It's interesting. As you were talking, I was thinking about how energy um, takes different forms, right? Like it can be electricity. It can be, um, you know, gasoline or oil or whatever. And I was thinking about how, like, you're talking about how, like, like, what can I do about something on the other side of the world? But because of the immediacy of media and so on, I'm aware of it. I'm aware of this crisis. I'm, as we're speaking, Gaza is, you know, blockaded and people are starving and hospitals don't have electricity and it's horrible. And we're hyper aware of that. We, you know, you can't look at a newspaper or a website without knowing it. Um, and yet, what can we do? And I, and I was thinking like how, like we ordered some extra firewood this year because if any of our neighbors run low, we'll be able to help them out. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was thinking about how concern is like firewood, right? Like you can, in a way, this sort of psychological caring that you're talking about the range, the real range of it is about as far as you could take firewood. Yeah. You know? So, like, if if you read that somebody's really cold in, you know, in the Middle East, you're not going to, like, pack up some firewood <laughs> right. and ship it to them. Although it, I feel like people do do that. It's just, like, so nuts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It feels like our concern is like money like you can send money anywhere immediately you can just wire money but but it isn't Uh, the way we're built i feel like our compassion and our ability to affect change and really help someone is much more like firewood yeah and the range is like okay how far from where i'm sitting could i actually help somebody with a load of firewood you know it's yeah. it, it's local it's not global yeah yeah and i think i sorry I, that metaphor might not be no, one of my best and i do think like in starting my podcast and calling it a millennial's guide to saving the world it wasn't built on the delusion that i was going to be sending firewood across the world i was really trying to say saving the world is more of a local personal process but I think I do something, I think I do these things sometimes where I'm just like, I'm going to redefine millennial for everyone, or mm. I'm going to redefine saving the world through this thing that I'm doing, which is what I was trying to do with the podcast. I was ashamed to be a millennial. It was embarrassing to like say that I was. <laughs> and um, 
you know, I felt that saving the world was this far more localized, individualized process. But the fact of the matter is after five years, when someone's like, what's the name of your podcast? And I say, a millennial's guide to saving the world. They just assume it's like some young person sending firewood across the globe. And I, I sort of got a little bit sick of correcting that assumption or like, yeah. this is the name of my podcast, but it means here's my, you know, ele- elevator pitch. Like right. it was frustrating to have to constantly define myself. Yeah. There's a problem with na- with, with giving a semi ironic title to something. Yeah. Because people just hear the title and they don't know it's meant semi-ironically, you know, and then you have to fill it in and yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. So I felt like I was always kind of like fighting against the title to prove my point in a way, which was like (laughs) really exhausting. Um, Like I know it says Millennial's Guide to Saving the World, but here's what I really mean. And let me say that ad nauseum and Mm. like, you know, provide all these interviews and guests and examples of, of what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, it just it started to feel a bit oppressive, I guess. And 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 because my life has ultimately become far more local, I just felt myself over time like that title and that idea just got farther and farther away from what I really felt like I was doing mm. and where I felt like I was at. Um right. So what's happening now? So you're, I mean, are you closing up shop definitively or you're just sort of telling your listeners like, don't be concerned if you don't hear from me for a while or what are you, what are you doing? Um, well, I think I, I am definitely like ending the, a millennials guide to saving the world project as such, uh, at least that chapter of it, which was named that, um, because I, you know, I, I think what I've realized over the past several months, like podcast episodes were coming out so much more infrequently and I felt so much less compelled to be creative through that medium, which to me is always just like a sign that something needs to change because Mm -hmm. I think I'm a pretty inherently creative person that has a lot of stuff to get out. Mm -hmm. And so if I feel unmotivated or uninspired, which I really truly never had before. Like it was the podcast project was absolutely continually um, inspiring to me, but then it stopped being inspiring. And I took that as a sign that I needed to shift something. So I, you know, and also I, I think I feel a little bit more pulled to, to write. And like, it's sort of the opposite of what was happening before where I felt like I don't have enough time or energy to spend, you know, writing a book or writing something because you have to go back and you edit it, right? Like a podcast is so much more immediate and you don't have to go through all of those edits and it's much more Mm -hmm. stream of consciousness. And that felt really aligned for me at the time. And, and for five years that felt like what I was compelled to do. But now I kind of feel the opposite of that. I actually feel the desire to spend more time and to, to improve Mm. my writing, which if I look back at it, you know, I was talking to someone recently in Boulder who plays piano and he said, you know, I've always had a big problem with commitment, but piano's the one thing that stayed constant. Mm. Um, and I am definitely someone that has so many different interests and wants to do like all the things all the time. But if I look back, the one thing that's always remained consistent is writing. Hmm. 
And I feel like I would like to honor that a little bit more uh, and spend more time there, I guess. And so prioritizing writing, like I'm going to keep, I have, I have a Substack which I've had now for a couple of years, which is just anyakots.substack.com. So that link will stay the same. At the moment, the Substack is called a millennial's guide to saving the world, but I'm going to change that. Hmm. And I, I might release some podcasts. You know, I really also enjoy reading what I've written and like putting it to music or something. That's really enjoyable for me. So there might still be audio components of the Substack, but the podcast as such and the name of the Substack as a millennial's guide is definitely going to change. Hmm. It feels seasonal. Uh, this conversation and, and what you're doing and obviously I'm looking out the window and there's a fucking blizzard happening. And <laughs> yeah. when we started, it wasn't snowing yet. Yeah. Uh, I, I, do you feel any kind of like negative emotions around this? Do you feel sadness? Do you feel a sense of failure? Like, are you betraying some vision that you were going to do this your whole life or something? I mean, how, you know, because it's it's always interesting when you come to the end of something that you've put a lot of time and effort into. There's always a some grief around it, right? Like, even it's funny though because the end of it, the podcast will exist. Yeah. People can go back and yeah. listen to it as yeah. long as they want to, right? Yeah. So it's it's strange. Like, yeah. how is it an end, really? Yeah. And grief is is interesting to me because I I don't really see grief as sadness. Hmm. I see it as a little bit more complex than that. Like, and I hadn't really been feeling a lot of grief. Mostly what I was feeling was excitement and this kind of resurgence of energy that I Hmm. felt like I hadn't been feeling for a little while. And the other day I went back and I listened to the song that I had put in the first episode of the podcast that I ever put out, which is a Rilo Kylie song. And I mean, it, I, it's amazing how perfect that song was, not just for that moment in my life, but as sort of definition for what the podcast was going to be about, which was like, I'm in this really difficult, challenging, painful place, but I'm going to like, and I'm going to face all that stuff. I'm not going to ignore it, but in some ways I'm going to like suck it up and keep moving forward anyway. And so despite the, the pain, it's like, I have a mission and I have, and I'm passionate about something or many things. And I'm going to like, you know, kind of put on a happy face and, and make it work somehow. And it's this, the song is set to like a, like a marching band drumming almost sounds like a army kind of a, a beat. So it's like this anthem of, you know, keep going and continuing to move forward despite what's weighing you down and what's really heavy. And I listened to that song the other day and, and started crying and felt pretty overwhelmed by, you know, what I see as grief, but it's not like, it's not sadness. It's beautiful because I feel like I fulfilled the mission of what I set out to do. And I, I never started the podcast thinking I was going to do it for the rest of my life. In fact, I 
I very intentionally never approach anything like that. Um, I've changed my career and what's making me money or my life or relationships where I'm living so many different times that if I felt like, oh, this next project is what I have to do forever would be debilitating and I would probably never make any decision. So I've, I've pretty intentionally approached everything as a step on the way to the next step. Mm. So I, yeah, it, it doesn't, I, I couldn't say that I predicted when it would end. Um, but it doesn't surprise me that I feel like it's ended. And yeah, I, I think, I'm just so grateful. I feel like the past five years doing that project, meeting all the people I met, uh, meeting you through the podcast. So many of my friends came through the podcast. I've had so many beautiful experiences as a result of it. I've learned so much. Like it gave me an excuse to talk to amazing people who I would have otherwise had no reason to talk to. Um, And yeah, it, it feels like it, the podcast project as such, like marked a moment in time in my life and now things are changing. And so I, I want to package whatever I'm doing differently. Beautiful. Yeah. Can we end this with that song? Is that cool? Sure. All right. What's the name of the I song? I was planning to do that anyway. <laughs> so we're co-releasing this, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, what's the name of the song? It's called A Better Son or Daughter. A Better Son or Daughter. Yeah, by Rilo Kiley. Thank you, Anya Kotz. Uh, we're all, I'll speak for the audience, and saying we're all excited to see what comes next. <laughs> <laughs> all your, your juicy creativity is going to keep manifesting one way or another. Uh, people actually can read your articles in the Crestone Eagle online if they want to. If you, if you want to, Touch of the local in your life. If you're feeling a little too global, uh, find the Crestone Eagle online and look for Anya Katz's byline. She's started off writing one article four or five months ago, and now you got seven coming out in the November. It's a little much. It's a little much. You're taking over the place. Thank you, Anya Katz. Thank you. I appreciate you asking me these questions. It felt a lot easier than trying to sum it up on my own. Save me this time, and your mind.